model. If somebody asks me a question, if I can't answer it, I find somebody who can. And it's almost that simple that nobody at the unit tells you that they're the smartest guy in the world. What they will tell you though, is that they could most likely figure it out, you know? And I have a very good working knowledge of explosives on a lot of different levels, very complicated stuff. So when the army tasked somebody at the unit to destroy something that was a very large structure, I can't tell you where that was either, but the guy came to me and he said, Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our mini-series with former Special Mission Unit Operator Tom Bigley. Um, Tom, for the second part of the mini-series, do you want to talk about why you value this this concept of thinking on your feet so much? Yeah, I you know, thinking on your feet is kind of a, it's kind of a buzzword that we, we use at the unit, but basically it's be able to think independently. I think it's like individual ability because collectively it's like, we can see what groupthink is doing to us right now. Is that <laughs> not? Don't want to go off on that tangent. But the important thing about individual thought is that if somebody's tasked with something down to the operator level, he needs to be able to figure out at at certain levels what to do without assistance. And it's just like being able a mechanic being able to fix brakes or something. If if something breaks on it. He's got to have the ability to fix things at a certain level. And and the Army likes to use a lot of terms of, you know, operator level for maintenance and then the next stage of maintenance being depot level or whatever it is. Honestly, I don't know. There's a lot of smarter people about Army maintenance than I am. But the fact is that when the when the unit talks about thinking on your feet, they're adding another element to that. They're adding the fact that you have to be competent enough about what you're doing at your level to be able to tell the people above you what you need to be successful. So that's important. A lot of people say, well, we're going to give these people all the tools they need, all that. And the mechanic, in the sense of whether you're an operator or a diesel mechanic, some of those guys know innately from experience that some of that stuff doesn't work, but his boss keeps feeding it to him or keeps telling him how to do it better. Instead of listening to the guy that's doing it and saying, hey, wait a minute, there's probably a better way we can do this. What the Rangers are good at, the unit's good at, and not the Marine Corps, is listening to people at the operator level, telling them how to fix things, and then actually trying to implement it. A great example of that, that has nothing to do with the Army, but a very successful U.S. company, is a U.S. company called U.S. Surgical in Norwalk, Connecticut. Back in the 80s, I worked for them as initially just a nug, filling packets to just kind of drone work. And then they they identified me as a hard worker and put me in quality control. And this was like a temporary summer job that I just needed in like 1979 while I was going to school. So not like my lifelong ambition, but they identified, you know, somebody that was doing a good job. So they pulled me out and said, we're going to make you a quality control inspector. And during that time, 
they had a bunch of Vietnamese refugees that came out of Southeast Asia and were living in Connecticut. And some of these people were working for this company. And the Asian work ethic is completely different than the American work work ethic. They always have the company in mind and how to do things better. So a couple of these guys had taken some of these surgical staples and they were skin staplers, taking these cartridges home and re-engineered them. And they fixed a couple of critical problems. And to the company's you know, credit, they looked at this and said, hey, this is fantastic. You guys did a great job. And they compensated them financially. And they said, hey, if you guys think of anything else, so now this made them work twice as hard, but they did make improvements on a self-motivated basis, but it was a company looking at an operator, fixing a problem, and then implementing it, and they just took out a lot of, just a lot of layers of bureaucracy, and they were smart enough to utilize it. And I, I watched that effect several times, and a matter of fact, on my line, they turned to me and said, you know, we know you're going to college, but we want to we want to see if we can help you go to engineering school. If you want to change your major, become an engineer, and then you'll have a slot here as soon as you graduate. And I turned it down. But the fact is that they were trying to identify quality and and utilize it in their business. And that's what Delta does. They look at people that are operators and they actually listen to what they have to say about how to get things done. They may not implement everything, but it's very important to listen to those people. Well, listen, I know it might be hard for you to say something nice about officers. You know, it's kind of a, an NCO rule. You're not allowed to say nice things about officers a lot. But what do you think it is that those officers do different to be able to actually have some humility and listen to the non-coms that are actually, you know, you guys with your boots on the ground closest to the problem where, you know, whether it's corporate America, whether it's nonprofit, other places in the government, it's hard for people in charge to, for whatever reason, humans have a tough time tamping down their ego and listening to somebody technically lower in rank or lower down the totem pole. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, and you know, in our last segment, I just gave accolades to Colonel Briscoe. So <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I'm okay. Not, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not a negative. I, and I know people. You're right, though. There are some NCOs and some senior NCOs that I know that would never say a good thing and have nothing good to say about officers in general. But what I can tell you is that I've worked with some fantastic officers in the in the army. And one of the best one was here in the reserves. One of the best managers I saw was a guy named General Kelly, who was an aviator from Vietnam, went through the the ranks and became the chief of staff of the Washington National Guard. I mean, hands down, one of the best guys. And one of the reasons was because he listened to me. And that, you know, that sounds a little arrogant, but he listened to the guy on the ground and said, hey, what do we need? Here's a perfect example of that. I was in a meeting with probably four or five really senior officers, some government people, a bunch of other high-end staff people talking about the response right after 9-11 to the airport security situation. They knew who I was, and I was in there because General Kelly was chairing the meeting. And there was a guy in there that was in civilian clothes. I had no idea who he was, and they knew who he was, but we are talking about everything. And they asked around the table what we should do. And I said, well, if you want my opinion, I'd train everybody to shoot a pistol, give them pistol sidearms. They could stand there in berets and pistols without Kevlar helmets and rifles and and all this stuff you're talking about, putting them in flak jackets. I said, it'll make a much, much better impression of what the soldiers are. They will add a level of security even like that. And I said, the biggest challenge is getting through the training. 
So they all kind of said, yeah, sure, and kind of moved on. Well, the next day, General Kelly called me into his office and said, hey, remember what you talked about in the meeting yesterday? The the attorney general of the state of Washington just mandated that as that's what we're doing. And I was kind of like, wow. I said, how do you find out about it? What was I didn't see him there. He goes, yeah, that staff sergeant guy in civilian clothes, that's his aide. So that's an example of these guys listening. And that's exactly what we did. We implemented that. I did all the training for it. And, you know, I, and I will say this, that it was recognized as the best training plan at that time in the country by the senior, whoever the guy was in charge of the National Guard. He didn't believe we we're actually doing what we were doing. And Jim said, Jim Kelly said to him, because, yeah, we got this Delta guy that did it all for us. So and. And rightly so, that's how to do it, though, is find somebody that's doing the right thing at the right level. And if they have either questions, comments, input, you have to listen to that. And you don't have to implement it all, but some of it might make sense. And if you don't do that, you'll, you'll pay the price for it at some point. The, the Asians are good at that, to be honest with you. The Japanese have kind of set the standard globally for that over the past probably 40 years at reinventing the, and, and I can't remember the exact terms, but basically not utilizing parts in storage, but it's an on-demand part manufacturing process that they came up with at a very low level, and it, it changed the world of manufacturing. So Well, so I know that one thing when I do talk with some leaders or CEOs about stuff like this, there is a concern of what if those folks do it wrong? And I think one thing I admire about your community is you guys spend so long with your operators that people higher up the food chain can actually trust their judgment, you know? And, and so they don't, have to have, they don't have to worry about what you and one other guy, when you're off on some, you know, mission not dressed up like army guys, right? They don't have to worry about what you're doing. They've spent so much time with you, A, in selection, but B, in helping you with creative thinking and thinking on your feet and just the self-conditioning you've talked about before, that they can trust your judgment. Were there any exercises or, or when you think about how creative your, your unit members were, the guys you worked with, how much of that was the osmosis of being with those guys and how much of it was like intentional creativity, think on your feet kind of training? I think the, the, the ability to, or the, the opportunity, opportunity to be able to have the input at that level and have them listen to you there there's a big difference between like say corporate america and even the ranger regiment or the army and what goes on at the unit the operators absolutely have a say in how things are done they have to do them and they're putting their life on the line and to question them is to basically say they're incompetent so and not that you can't question them or debate stuff but they're not going to debate you know i had an in incident one time with a, a colonel, a very, a commander asked me to run a live fire machine gun range day and night as a certification for a deploying unit, something I have done hundreds of times under all kinds of circumstances and in actual combat. I think I was relatively capable of pulling this off on a range that I have done it on multiple times. So on the actual ground that I've operated on. So I was briefing this group of people with this other colonel who was from the oversight army. And he questioned right in front of me too. He questioned the colonel and he said, why isn't the, the operations officer briefing this? And I'm looking at him, I'm like, and, and I have 
I have respect for officers, but when somebody's demeaning me, it's really hard for me to keep my mouth shut. So I said, you understand I'm standing right here, right? And I said, if you want somebody else to brief this, feel free. I said, I'm the most qualified person in this state, if not the country, to do this. But you go find somebody else to do it. I said, and if somebody gets killed out here because it's very dangerous, especially at night, good luck. Have a good time. And I left. And I walked away and sat in the car while this this conversation between these two colonels ensued with my commander. And they asked me to come back out and continue the briefing. And the guy apologized and he said, I'm sorry, I really didn't understand who you were and what you were talking about and so forth. And I said, well, before you make a stupid comment, maybe you should ask. I mean, you could ask me why I think I can do this. I'll tell you. But, you know, you make some kind of idiotic comment about some staff officer that read about this in a book being the guy to brief it. And that's the problem a lot of times corporately and in the regular army. And, so, you know. So what makes me laugh about this story is I think about I don't know how many years you've been helping us run Child Rescue, the the charity Child Rescue Association. But. You're like one of the most even-tempered guys. You're so easy to work with. And like you are constantly deferring me, Nick, Peter. Well, I don't know. What do you guys think? And and so it's always funny for me to hear these stories of somebody who actually does get under your skin because well, you I think about five or six years, I, mean, you know. I think about all these years of doing stuff together and I don't see that. So it is a little bit entertaining, to, entertaining for me to hear that you've got that human reaction. But I want to come back to this again, this idea of thinking on your feet, not waiting for orders. I mean, how do you think that you guys develop that to a level that, you know, not everybody in the military does? Well, I think trial and error initially. So I don't think any of this stuff came in because people were clairvoyant and they knew how to do everything. I think most of it, and it's still going on, you know, I think the refining process that occurs at the unit is probably second to none. So they can identify problems at all levels and try to implement a fix to them rapidly. If you need a piece of equipment to get your job done, they can basically have stuff designed and manufactured. And granted, everybody doesn't have that ability, but it's nice to see that and how it can operate at the highest levels. The other thing is that those things can be farmed out. So the people that are in the unit that learn all these things they get farmed out to special forces, ranger battalions, and other parts of the regular army, and not not exclusively and not in any kind of plan, but innately, when I left the army and went to the reserves, I took all that knowledge with me, and I implemented it the best I could, and the smart people identified it, and it did help them. It actually changed some of the stuff that went on in one of the one of the ways they were doing one of the things they were doing in the reserves where they were screwing these guys out of full-time orders and it's really against the regulations but until somebody brought it up and it was me and i said hey this doesn't sound right and i investigated it they changed the policy because a lot of people didn't realize what was going on so all this stuff is even at the best level they're constantly trying to improve their ability to do certain things my guess is with all the combat operations that have gone on since I left there, they've refined things to an even much higher level. And and so has the Army. You know, they just killed uh, two terrorists last night with what they're calling the ninja bomb. It's a, it's a non-explosive projectile that basically shreds the target with knives or something like that. In the reading that I, if you look at it, it's in the news right now. <clears throat> it's a Hellfire missile with knives in it. <laughs> so kind of interesting to see how they're 
they're looking at collateral damage. And those are examples of somebody coming up with an answer to how do we implement something? How do we do it safer? I think that process, and, and I just talked about that in uh, the Asian markets, that process is going on and to the detriment of U.S. companies if they're not doing it. And if you do that stuff across the board, I, I think you're going to be just much more successful. Well, I love it. I think one of the questions I have is I'm interested in how you think about developing your own creativity and problem solving skills. Like I look at, you know, you used to be an owner of Pipe Hitters Union, the clothing brand, right? And I right. was doing stuff, you know, is actually a Force Recon Marine took me to Nigeria to go. We were trained in Nigerian special operations. It was like SF guy. I brought a 25 year seal with me. And it was like all these like... You know, I was teaching some leadership stuff. They were teaching about, here's mistakes we made in Afghanistan and Iraq. Hopefully you don't make those same mistakes with Boko Haram, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, I'd heard about pipe hitters from all these other guys in multiple different services. And you obviously saw something in that brand for your community before other folks and became an investor, became an owner, right? Right. Or, or like, and I don't want to overshare on this one, but, you know, I'm thinking about another government agency where they needed to be able to test weapons in a in a certain country without everybody knowing they were shooting guns right right, right? and and you right. go develop a way you know you developed a self-contained yeah. unit that that could happen with right and yeah. obviously other people weren't doing that like when you think about the unique things that you see that not everybody else sees the unique things that you've invented the body armor you've invented all these stuff <laughs> that you've done in the civilian world since i'm i'm interested in how you approach problem solving or, or innovation or creative thinking. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, you know, I'm not sure about if there's like an official approach to it. I'll be honest with you that some of the things that occur are just basic finance. In other words, you know, the guy that actually started Pipe Hitters Union, Justin, he convinced me that, you know, we were going to make money. So that's obviously, and, and I don't think that you should downplay that fact of what's going on. But then how do you make money the most efficient way? But every sales pitch, every investor is getting approached by somebody who's saying, oh, this is going to make money. And yet mm-hmm. you were able to see one that you were able to, you were able to, there's a hundred things you could have put your money in. You were able to pick one that was actually going to work, you know, or. Right. Well, I've done that several times. So the, the, the key to me is if I can look at it and say, especially in the pipe hitters line. I looked at that and said, yeah, that's something that I would do So, or I would buy. So it makes sense to me. It depends how it's marketed and so forth. But the bottom line is that's something I could do. The reason why I sold the company was the opposite reason. It's because I didn't like the, the manager's, the way he was approaching things. I didn't like it. And I thought it was a good time to sell and it was a profitable position. So on the flip side, I got involved in that because I liked what the product was. I thought it was something that people would be interested in, and it was, and it is, still is. And other, in other senses, though, I look at how to do something better. For example, you know, we built all these structures in, in Africa, these big training simulators for the Department of State. They came to me and said, kind of a blank form, how much does it cost to do this? Well, I knew basically because of input from other people what they were being charged generally, not exactly, but I knew generally what the price was. So I knew that if I came in at a very good price with the right product and I gave them everything that they were looking for or told them what they were looking for, that we would be successful. And we were. And, you know, that was 
over time, $1.5 million, about 500 grand a pop for each one. And I think the other price they got was almost double. It was at least 60% higher than the price I gave them. So it was important to give them the right product. But also, I, you know, I didn't, and I, and I made a lot of money there. I mean, I, I mean, my, my cost versus profit margin was above 25, was above probably 30%. So in the States, if you're making 15 to 20%, you're doing pretty well. And although overseas and other operations, I was doing a lot better in security work as a manufacturing thing, that was pretty good. So, well, and, and I guess there is an element as I think about just the different things that you've done. So often, like you hear Warren Buffett talk about, he invests within his own circle of competence. He doesn't try and go, you know, it's why he doesn't do, why he hasn't done lots of tech stuff over the years. It's not in his world. And so he doesn't pretend to know the stuff he doesn't. And I do think, I think about a number of the creative things that you've done is you have paid the price to know a lot about that world ahead of time. But I guess my, my question is, you still keep coming up with things that, cause there's a lot of people in your world and you have repeatedly come up with things that nobody else did come up with. What do you attribute that to? I, you know, I don't know if I come up with things that nobody else came up to. I kind of use the, the, the units model. If somebody asks me a question, if I can't answer it, I find somebody who can. And it's almost that simple that nobody at the unit tells you that they're the smartest guy in the world. What they will tell you though, is that they could most likely figure it out. You know, and I have a very good working knowledge of explosives on a lot of different levels, very complicated stuff. So when the army tasked somebody at the unit to destroy something that was a very large structure, I can't tell you where that was either. But the guy came to me and he said, how would you do this? Right. And I said, well, I would do X, Y, and Z. And they, and they, they never did it, but they would have implemented that plan. So, because he knew that if he, I had very good knowledge in that, not just the explosive stuff, but I have a very good background in structural engineering and so forth. So, but if somebody comes and asks me something, a lot of times, in, in other words, how to make these simulators in Africa, I brought two or three experts in that I knew personally, engineers and so forth, said, how can we do this? And we need to do it at a cost that's, you know, here. You know, that that is one interesting thing. I think about both yourself and, and other folks from the unit of the willingness to just accept constraints and start innovating around them instead of whining about it needs to be under this price or whining about we have to do it without that much gear. So we need to figure out what else it's going to take to get this done. Like I do find like an attitude from you guys of like a real separation of what can I influence? What can't I influence and using up all your energy on the things you can do something about. Right. That's exactly true. So if you can't affect something, just go around it. I mean, don't, there's, there's a lot of cases where I was told, you know, what are we going to do here? I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I've got to look at it just like you are. And I'd look at it and say, in, in one case, said because we had to enter an area and we couldn't cut the locks on the fences. What? Maybe you we can't tell us enter. where this is, but like what year are we I talking about? It, or was what's... In, it was in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. It, was, it was a training thing, but okay. it was a very secure place and they didn't want us cutting the locks. Okay. So I took the fence I took the fence apart. We just we just deconstructed the, the fence. So it's still locked. We just took the gate off. And we drove around and we drove through it. So, I mean, that's a simple example of... But that... And it's funny even bringing this stuff up because it just sounds so simple to do this. But that type of lateral thinking, like, 
I I've seen you do it and and other guys repeatedly where it's like you just don't waste any time whining. You don't sit around right, crying right. that it's hard or that like there's just not I see so much more defeatism in other folks when there's a challenge. First, you know, just like me, most other people like have a mini freak out, get emotional, <laughs> right? And there's like all these things that are not helpful to solving the problem. And we we whine that it's not the way it should be, or we complain that it's going to be hard. And like, I see you guys like skip all that and just going straight to the problem solving part. Yeah, I, you know, I think part of what you see is a very bad trend in America to teach people from a le- very young age that they're victims of something, whatever that may be. And how so, do you? Yeah, how do you guys untrain that? Where you know it shows well, up in society. I, I don't know how they do it now. I mean, back in the day, I was tortured basically, and they said we're going to show you what a real victim is, not a not a. a <laughs> is this like victim. seer classes or what? Oh God, they would torture us, and the Ranger Battalion got tortured. You know, they would say, "You want to be a victim? Here's what it feels like." And you know, once you actually experience real hardship, I mean, real hardship, and some people. I, you know, there's poor people out there dealing with real hardship. I'm not trying yeah, to yeah, downplay what, what poor people or certain groups have to deal with. But the fact is, they're all not really suffering that much. And comparatively to somebody that's being tortured. Yeah. And and the reality of it is you have to be able to accept a certain amount of problems in everything, in, in life and in all these things. And if you can't figure out how to get through that, you know, you're either going to fail miserably. You may be bankrupt or whatever in a corporate sense, or you just may get by. I don't know if anybody wants to just get by. If they do, that's their problem or they're good for you. But the rest of us that want to succeed and do better, whether it's and it's not all financial. A lot of people tie financial success to everything. You know, I'm not the richest guy in the world, but I think I'm relatively successful in what I've done and the position I put myself and my family in right now. So, Tom, maybe to finish off here, can you tell us about somebody that you served with that if you were going to go on a on a risky mission, high consequence mission, that this is the kind of individual you wanted with you? Can you tell us something about that person? One of the guys I worked for in the unit was a guy named Brian Morgan. Um, I, I would basically go anywhere with him because we were very similar in, in the sense of getting the job done and being very skilled and competent. And he would never get overexcited about anything. But the reality of it is that he was the, he was helping me, even though he was the team leader. <laughs> Sounds weird. And I, hopefully you'll hear this and laugh, but a lot of people relied on what I was going to be able to bring to the table in a big general sense. And I wasn't really that concerned what they were bringing to the table, as long as it was competence and skill and so forth. But I didn't really care if they could do, you know, eclectic things with that. So I can't really speak to somebody that I would look up to as an overall problem solver in any avenue that I was going to go into. That's okay. With this, somebody specifically with this guy that you talk about, what mm-hmm. what was it about him? Like, what's what's a trait of his that the rest of us could work to develop more of? Well, I think he had. Well, he was very honest, so that was a very key part of that. And and, and we talked about integrity, but his integrity was was uh, flawless. So that's important to me in the sense that every time I needed something from this guy, he bent over backwards to make it happen prior to anything that we went out on. 
but skill wise, he was very, very, he's somebody in, in the shooting sense for long, long rifle shooting. He's somebody that I would look up to. And the other thing is he had the ability to, he knew his skill limits too, which is important. A lot of people don't do that, especially at the unit. They think they can do more than they maybe can do. And that's important to me. So he knew that he could, and I, I will give a caveat to that. He thought he was the greatest driver in the world. Very good driver, but I don't know if he was the greatest driver in the world. But those kind of skills and having a grounded sense of what you can do in, in shooting or other, other types of skills is important. And I had a very close relationship with him. And I think for me, I have to have a personal connection with people that I'm going to deal with on a, on a life-taking or a life-saving venture. I really have to be able to trust them implicitly, whether they work for me or I work for them. Tom Schaefer would be another guy that worked for me for a long time in Iraq. And he's a very skilled guy, but the bottom line is he's, he's loyal to a fault and that's important. And so is Brian. I love so it. I, love I it. think loyalty really transcends everything, but you do have to have this skill set. I mean, Tom can shoot very well, very competent rifle shooter and pistol shooter. Brian's very competent in rifle and pistol, other things driving somewhat. <laughs> So I think loyalty is, is key for me. And I think a lot of places that's important and maybe it should be more important. I love it. Well, listen, thank, thanks for all your time. Yeah. This has been great. All right. Okay. So, thank, thanks, yeah. everyone.